Father, unplug our ears, open our eyes uh, to hear your word preached this morning. I pray, Father, that you would send your Holy Spirit to communicate to each of us through your word preached those things that we need to hear, the um, admonishments, the encouragement, Father. Pray, Lord, as we wrap up this series in Philippians, that your will would be done as we listen to your word. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> title of my sermon this morning is Joy in Contentment and Generosity. Joy in Contentment and Generosity. In 1831, Alexis de Tocqueville, a French Roman Catholic aristocrat who studied politics and economics and philosophy, came to the United States to spend about 10 months here. He was originally sent on a grant by the French government, again this is 1831, to come to the U.S. and to study the prison system and the penitentiaries and to glean some insights, both good and bad, about how America um, incarcerated its, uh, its criminals. But he ended up staying much longer as he was fascinated with the dynamics of democracy and a democratic republic here in the United States. De Tocqueville was only about, uh, he was born about six years after the French Revolution. And if you know anything about kind of French history and that revolution, there was a movement from monarchy and, and kind of aristocratic society to more of a democracy. And he uh, came here and uh, spent 10 months and then in 1835, so four years later, he published one of his most famous works. Many of you, I'm sure, have heard of this work or you've read it. It's called Democracy in America. Is anyone, anyone familiar with Tocqueville? Okay, a few of you. Uh, you should read this if you get a chance, uh, not because he has everything correct, but I think as, actually as Christians we have a lot to glean about what he found here in the United States. So this work, Democracy in America, was his attempt to understand American culture. That's what it ended up being. And while there's so much to digest in what he had to say, some of it is relevant to us today, and in particular with how we understand contentment as believers. I want to read to you three quotes before we get into our text this morning. Three quotes by Tocqueville. Here's the first. 1831. In America, I saw the freest and most enlightened men placed in the happiest condition that exists in the entire world. And it seemed to me that a sort of cloud habitually covered all of their features, for they appeared to me grave and almost sad in the midst of all their pleasures. Quote number two. In the United States, a man carefully builds a dwelling in which he may pass his declining years in. That's a retirement home. And he sells it while the roof is being laid. He plants a garden and then rents it out just as he was going to taste its fruits but never does. He clears a field and he leaves to others the care of harvesting its crops the American man embraces a profession and no quicker than he has embraced it, quits it. He settles in a place from which he departs soon after so as to take his changing desires again somewhere else. And then finally, 
maybe my most favorites of quotes from this work. He wrote, One is at first astonished to contemplate the singular agitation displayed by so many happy men in the very midst of their abundance. This spectacle is, however, as old as the world. What is new is to see a whole people on a continent show it. Now, uh, Tocqueville, I think, he, he nailed what was going on then in the United States and even here today. Sad in their pleasures, he wrote, planting a garden only to rent it out before tasting its fruit, that is, to make a little more dough, not to actually enjoy the fruit of the garden that they had planted. He goes on to say that agitation exists in the United States in the midst of her abundance. You see, not much has changed in 200 years. There's nothing new under the sun, as the preacher in Ecclesiastes writes. For you see, the heart of us all, not just here in the United States, but around the world, the heart of man is, a natural, is in a natural state of discontent. Would you agree? In discontent. I'm not up here quoting to Tocqueville to talk about capitalism or democracy. It's all very good. Matter of fact, we live in a wonderful country. I love our country as it were, and it's, it's a great place to live. The problem for the church in the midst of the country is that we become increasingly discontent because we adopt a mindset that our very identity is, in fact, tied to our production. Our production, not to a person, but to production. To be content in a word is to be satisfied. So when you think about the word contentment or content, it means to be satisfied or as it were in a state of restfulness regardless of all of your circumstances. Think about the last time that you felt just really content with life, with your station in life. Content in the Lord. That is, um, rested in the Lord, satisfied with what you have in the Lord. I'm thinking of St. Augustine when he, of course, begins, and most of you know this quote, he begins his confessions with this phrase, my heart is restless until it finds rest in whom? In God, not in productivity. And we're going to see, I'm going to end the sermon with an allusion to our gospel reading that, by the way, like, godly ambition is a very good thing. Godly productivity is a very good thing. We're not just to be a bunch of Charlie Browns as Christians. No, no, no. But here's the thing. We utilize what we have been given out of contentment in Christ to bless others, to be generous, because it's only in our contentment and in our generosity that joy can flourish. In our letter to the Philippians, this final chapter, this final sermon on our um, sermon series of Philippians, Paul speaks of contentment. As I mentioned, contentment is not innate in us at all. I mean, I'm already, as I'm preaching, thinking about things I need to do around the homes, things I need to get, you know, done, and, and things to do, and, and places to be. We're just not naturally content. Paul's going to say that contentment is something that has to be learned. You've got to learn it. You're not just given it. Contentment is not innate. It's not natural. But if we learn it, from St. Paul and practice it, I promise you, my beloved brothers and sisters, joy will begin to overflow in your lives. And we will see, too, that those who are truly content in this life will view their money, their belongings, even their, own, their children, their grandchildren, and their own very lives 
in a different light. We will then be freed to be generous as we see the Philippian Christians were to Paul as they practiced generosity and in turn, I'm sure, experienced deep joy. Well, as St. Paul concludes this letter, he finally mentions the generosity given by the Philippian Christians as an offering of thanks and support for Paul's preaching of the gospel and founding of the church of Philippi. We know in the text here that Epaphroditus had delivered to Paul while he was in prison a large financial contribution, a financial contribution out of their love for him so that the gospel and the kingdom could continue to grow. Remember, the church of Philippi was the first church planted in Europe. The first church planted in Europe. And they had been a partner with Paul in his sufferings and in his journey and in his apostolic mission from nearly the beginning. Now, if you're reading through the entire book of Philippians in one sitting, knowing about the large financial contribution that they had given to St. Paul, you may be thinking, man, he sure waits a long time to talk about the money. (laughs) A long time to say thank you, really, for the money. And I think he does it on purpose. But you see, right before he gives them thanks, he really talks about his ability to be content in God. Imagining uh, one time when I was young and generously gave a decent amount of money to someone overseas, and I received a communication from them, and like 95% of the communication was just about how the Lord was working and how good they were doing, whatever, and there was one line at the end like, thank you for your money. I was back in college, and I was like, are you kidding me? Send my hard work and money over there and you can barely say anything at the very end? You kidding me? Ungratefulness? No, no, no. They, like Paul here, were saying, look, it ain't about the money. What it's about is that you, in your generosity, have supported me and there are fruits in the kingdom because of your generosity. And he's saying that, guess what? The money that you gave to me didn't allow me to be more content or less content. Actually, I'm content in Christ so I can freely receive your generosity and use it for the mission of God. Contentment in the joy that is led um, from contentment and the generosity and the joy that comes from it. All right, beloved, uh, let's turn to Philippians chapter 4, page 982. We'll begin with verse 10. Paul writes these words, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length You, that is the Philippian Christians, have revived your concern for me. For you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. He rejoices, he gives thanks thanks for them. They had revived their concern for him. They had had a long partnership with St. Paul. And he says that nothing had come his way in terms of of kind of uh, monetary contribution, these things, uh, yet, but... He said, you didn't have an opportunity to send it to me. Now there is. I'm in prison, and I need help for the gospel and the kingdom. And they sent, of course, their their love and their offerings. In verse 11, maybe the most important pivotal verse of this entire section, Paul writes this, Now that I'm speaking, or excuse me, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. She love how, um, how Paul says, look, even though he's in prison, Look, it's not that I'm in need. I don't necessarily need the money. I don't need the financial support as it were. I'm not necessarily in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. At this moment, when, we, uh, when the letter would have been read aloud to the Philippian Christians and they're hearing verse 11, they would have heard Stoic philosophy in the background. 
So when Paul said, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content, they would have heard the Stoics in the background. For that word, content here in Philippians, is actually translated self-sufficient. How weird would that be, by the way, if we were reading in the ESV and it, it said, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be self-sufficient. Whew, we'd have been like, Paul, what's, yeah, what's going on? Like, but we're going to see later on he develops this. He can only be, quote-unquote, self-sufficient because his new self is in, his Adam is in Christ, the new Adam. His self is in the Lord. There's been an exchange, an identity switch and swap there that he can be sufficiently content in the Lord because of who, who knows him, that is, Jesus Christ. So the Stoics said, look within yourself. Here's the deal. The Stoics would say, look within yourself to be able to smile at the fortunes, no matter what they give you in life. Whether you're completely broke or you become an emperor, just smile and continue on out of your own self-will. And just that'll, that'll allow you to live in this world until one day you die and it's all over with. Of course, Paul was not advocating any type of Stoic philosophy that we have seen, as I mentioned last time, on the rise here in the West through all the Stoic YouTubers of the day. No. Paul goes on to ground what he has learned about contentment in Jesus Christ. Do you remember earlier in uh, Philippians, Paul wrote this about Jesus? Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the time, or at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This type of contentment, knowing who is on the throne at the right hand of the Father, knowing that we are his, this allows us finally to be content no matter what's going on, ups and downs in our life. You see, it is because of his communion with Jesus, the very God-man, that Paul can possess a contented life, irrespective of his earthly circumstances. For there is always a heavenly home in the future. But as I mentioned, Paul had to learn this. We are not naturally content. We have to learn it. And if you don't practice trying to learn contentment, and Paul's going to get in how we do that here in a moment, if we don't do that, you'll never be content, ever. You'll always be needing the bigger thing, the next thing, or even you'll, you'll want, you know, your kids to have this or that. Or you'd have, you'll, you'll always be in a state of discontent. You've got to learn it. You've got to practice it, as Paul shows us. Verse 12, Paul says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well, I love, you know, uh, Philippians 4.13 on athletic t-shirts and, you know, underneath the black, eye black and all that stuff. It's great. Yes, we can do all things that are good because Christ strengthens us. But Paul is giving us Ephesians 4.13 in the context of living a life that is content in what we have been given through Jesus Christ. Christ and what we've been given through Jesus Christ. And Paul says that there is a secret in being and facing plenty and hunger with contentment, and it is knowing that he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. Let me tell you a little bit about St. Paul's life. I'm sure most of you know this, 
But in 2 Corinthians, Paul gives us really an overview of the being brought low in his life. So some of you may be in a state of, of kind of lowliness in your life right now. I want you to hear Paul talk about his state. 2 Corinthians, he writes this. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship, through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul knew what it meant to be low in life, to be low. I want to add here, too, that I think some of Paul's being brought um, low is not just all of these circumstances he's mentioned in 2 Corinthians, but could you imagine thinking about your life and having the Lord Jesus Christ show up to you and say, stop persecuting me, the weight of your own sin, that kind of heaviness, that lowliness, that being brought low that Paul had experienced in his life, he knew how to be brought low. But then, of course, he knew how to abound as well, for his ministry was going well, though he was in prison. But he had escaped prison in the past by the hand of angels. He won a debate against Peter at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. He'd been called by the resurrected Jesus to be the apostle to the Gentiles. What an abundance in calling for Paul as well. He knew both. But he also knew that there was a secret to being content in the fluctuation within his life as an apostle. And that secret is that he knew and knows that through Christ, he can be strengthened to endure anything in this life. What is the secret? Christ is the secret. Faith in him is the secret. Elsewhere, Paul writes about contentment, and I think um, this is maybe one of the most important texts on contentment in addition to Philippians 4. In 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10, Paul writes this of contentment. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Let me say that again. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul waited till the end of Philippians to say thank you for the money because it wasn't about that. He wanted to show them contentment. But here's what's interesting about that passage in 1 Timothy 6. He says godliness with contentment is great gain. You would think it's just godliness is great gain. But you see, even the pursuit of godliness can lead us into discontent. We're, we're never godly enough. We need to keep doing more and more and more to be accepted by God. Actually, godliness with contentment is great gain. That is, pursuing godliness 
but being content with the work that God is doing in your life at that moment and not simply always striving for more and more and more, even in godliness, but asking God in, out of a content heart for the moment to desire, yes, more godliness, but godliness and contentment, they are merged together. That means contentment then is pretty important. It's a Christian virtue we don't preach about enough, we don't talk about enough in a culture and in a country and in a church here that is in a constant kind of perpetual state of discontent in life. Well, Paul then turns in verse 14 to talk about the generosity. He moves from contentment now to generosity. He writes this in verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. You see, Paul reminds them that when he left the region of Macedonia, they were the only church that had entered into any type of generous partnership with him financially. And what's crazy is that at this time, Thessalonica was the larger city. It was the more influential city. And they didn't give generously. They didn't support Paul. Matter of fact, it was Philippi that supported him. Even when he was in Thessalonica, this generous partnership for the gospel. I often wondered, the church of Philippi, to see the work that Paul was doing and to give generously to him, what a joy it must have been to see, though, the fruits of what would become of their generosity towards Paul. And I love the fact that Paul receives that money with contentment. Again, not feeling indebted to the Christians in Philippi, but saying, no, what you have given to me is going to be a fragrant offering unto God. And with that said, in verse 17 through 20, he talks about the generous gift of the Philippians as being that a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. He writes this, Not that I seek the gift with you, that is, not that I'm looking for handouts, as it were, from others, not that I seek it, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Beloved, when we are content in this life, I think we're moved then to more generosity. And when we give generously, not just to our church, of course, but also to others that are in need, to family, to friends, to the poor, I think we possess joy in a deeper way, but also, I want to say that we produce fruit in a different way. And Paul says, I'm not seeking the gift for the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. When we give generously to the kingdom work, fruit abounds. And it's to our credit because we listened, we sacrificed out of contentment to give generously for the spread of the kingdom on earth. Verse 18, Paul says, I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Notice that Old Testament language. I'm reminded even of the, of the offertory that we have when the baskets are passed out and money is given to the church, that this is a sacrifice from you of giving back to God, who really is already his, but it's a sacrifice unto him. And those who are discontent in this life, Christians in particular, are the least generous people on earth because you're always needing to keep things 
for what might get better, what, what the things we might need or want or desire. Contentment breeds generosity, and through contentment and generosity, we have, I think, deep and abiding joy. Finally, verses 19 and 20, Paul writes this, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul concludes this section making clear to the Philippian churches that he doesn't need their money and seek it, but he wants the fruit of their generosity and sacrifice to increase the fruit of the kingdom. When Christians give generously to support the kingdom of God, fruit is born in your life, in my life, and in the life of the church. He goes on again to talk about this fragrant aroma, this, this offering of our money to God that he receives and uses for the kingdom. But he ends, I love, with this, with this statement of God's character that, look, but God is going to still supply your need. In the midst of your sacrifice, he's not going to leave you alone. Father Zach and I were talking about this scripture this last week, and he brought up uh, this, this point in our staff meeting. We were going through this, that um, he had never known anybody, and I started to think in my own life, I don't think I've known anybody that has ever been so generous, not only to the church, but also to family and friends, that they regretted generosity, like out of their heart, that they really, really regretted being generous. But usually it's those who are generous for the kingdom that have much joy And that generosity almost always comes from those that are content with their station in life. So the question for us then, beloved, is are we content at all? Are we content at all in this life? Are we training our children for godly contentment and generosity? Or are the ways that we live our lives such that um, we either side with the Stoics and we're teaching our children and grandchildren to... Just simply smile at quote-unquote fate and whatever comes at you. Don't let, it, don't let it ruffle your feathers too much. Just keep on keeping on. Is that what we're showing our kids and our grandchildren and family and friends? Is the way that we spend our money, the way that we give our money, is that, um, is that an indictment of us that we are constantly discontent, seeking these external things that are going to finally make us happy, make us whole, give us peace and rest? How are we training our children, the next generation? I fall into the trap quite often of constantly comparing myself to others. If I only had this, my preaching was only like this, and my house only had this, and, and, and my children hear that, right? They hear this, and they hear the discontent amongst family and friends who are Christians. We should be content in what God has done for us, and from that contentment be moved to generosity in the church and in our lives. So I want to admonish you and encourage you in closing, my beloved brothers and sisters, to learn at St. Paul's School of Contentedness. Be content. Learn it. The way that you speak about your life and your station in life, is it always a grumbling against whether it's God or others? If this wouldn't have only happened, I would be ahead in this... Or is our language of thanksgiving and gratitude to God, contentment towards where we are? And then are we generous like the Philippian Christians who are giving to the kingdom, 
sacrificing to the kingdom out of our pocketbooks to make a difference? Or in our discontent, are we hoarding everything we've been given? Because, beloved, I think that when we live that way and we hoard everything that we have been given, not only will we not be content, we will be very discontent. We will also be joyless. But I think finally there will be no faith left to really receive what God is trying to show to us in this life. That through His Son, Jesus Christ, we can endure all things. So, beloved, this week, I want to encourage you to ask God to help you to be content, to help you to be generous, and to find joy knowing whose you are in Jesus Christ, and from that, to be sacrificial in the way you spend your money and your time and your talents. And finally, not to squander them, not to hide them, but like a good investor, like a good businessman would tell you, to invest those things in the kingdom. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.